Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host, Speaker, and Corey from Corey's Digs. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah. you got to say my lovely ladies. You got it wrong. But I'm not a lady. <laughs> lovely ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm stepping in for Speaker on the intro here because Speaker had some minor surgery this week and he's all drugged up. <laughs> he's all a little loop-de-loop-de right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be talking much. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm just here to chill. <laughs> well, we hope you feel better, Speaker. So glad you're here. You could join us. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about, we have a lot to go over. We're going to try to whiz through. There's a bunch of stuff, um, election-related stuff and some COVID-related stuff. Corey's going to talk about um, her part four of her report, COVID-19 report. And um, then we're going to also, she's also going to talk about the stimulus package, pardons, Burke's retiring. Um, I'm going to give some election updates, particularly uh, Arizona and Georgia. Uh, we'll talk about a couple of big meetings at the White House this week um, and Barr stepping down and the new acting AG taking over this week. Also uh, talk a little bit, if we have time, about January 6th of the DC protest that's planned. So um, I think we're going to roll into some um, COVID reporting right now. Corey, take it away. Okay, well, before we go into that, let me just say, um, so we saw on, what was it on? Something called Newsy? Deborah Burke saying that she is going to retire, which is very exciting for all of us. Um, she said that, she. so here's what's interesting. So she's saying that she'll help, the Biden transition and, you know, she'll help if they need her and stuff, but she plans on retiring that what was done to the treatment of her family over this past week was very overwhelming. And um, because they were attacking her about spending, you know, going to different homes during Thanksgiving after preaching to everyone not to do that. But here's the thing. When, when you guys read the, when that originally came out in the news, it felt so off to me. I was reading it thinking, why is legacy media attacking Burks? There's something going on here. And then sure enough, it was within a couple of days she comes out and says she's retiring. So I'm like, huh, did they plant this story so that she had an excuse to retire because she was asked to step down maybe? I don't know. It was all just a little weird because about a week prior to this, she was gunning for staying on the task force. Um, if Biden were to get in, she still intended on being a part of it. So then all of a sudden, boom, this happens. It was just a little weird. What do you think? Yeah, it's a little interesting that the media would go after Burks, that she's their darling. But I always wonder, what does she have lined up? You know, that's my right. question. It's like, well, she's retiring from this, but that doesn't mean she's going away. <laughs> I mean, right. so well, she's she probably got she something lined up. She did though, like she's worked for, you know, the federal government for many, many, many years, and it's, it's time. So she did make it sound like she was leaving everything, because my first thought, too, was, well, what about being the AIDS coordinator? You know, yep. she – so – so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what comes of that. 
So we have this wonderful, ginormous 1.4 trillion omnibus spending plus 900 billion COVID-19 relief package. And of course, for anyone who didn't see it, Trump just came out and I think it was yesterday, this whole week's a blur. Like I've not slept all week. So he came out and said, nope, you need to remove a lot of the ridiculous, you know, foreign aid and to the arts and to all kinds of stuff, um, fishing related stuff that's, that's in here, get rid of some of this pork and forget this $600 per person. We, you know, I want $2,000 per person. So, so then Pelosi tweeted out, Oh, is that all he wanted? Is, is that what he wanted? So now we have the number. He wants 2000 done. Let's get this done. So, so we'll see what they come back with. Um, we did have, we did have six senators vote against this, though everyone should have voted against this because aside from it being the most ridiculous, hugest money grab ever, they had a lot of things worked into here that should not be in here. And they had like two or three hours to read over 5,000 pages. It's ridiculous. So so you know it was absolutely ridiculous how they forced this through with just hours yeah. for them to read it over 5000 pages closer to 6 i think and mm -hmm. with so much pork stuffed in it it's insane i mean trillions of dollars right going to or multi multi hundreds of millions going to uh foreign countries oh yeah billions so so but marsha blackburn ted cruz ron Jeff Johnson, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, and Rick Scott voted against it. So kudos to them. I knew Rand Paul would. He's about the only one <laughs> who usually fights for the over all the budget spending ridiculousness that goes on. We'll call it slush funds. Ultimately, these are slush funds because this is what they do. And that way put so much in there going to other countries um, and, and all their freaking bills they do because that's how they move the money around. And I've, I'm not going to get into it, but I've done videos on that. And they've been doing this for decades. And exactly. When we, and when we're sitting here with people starving, out of work, they're forcing us to lock down. People can't pay rent and mortgage. You have homeless people. There's massive issues going on right now. And they want to send billions and billions out to the most ridiculous things and other countries. To, it's... This is yeah. how much they hate us. This, oh, yeah. They want to keep us down. If they put all that money towards all of us, no one would be starving. No one would be homeless. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the breakdown here. Uh, 1.3 trillion to Egypt, 700 million to Sudan, 453 million to Ukraine, 500 million to Israel, 130 million to Nepal, 135 million to Burma, Cambodia, Pakistan, Asia, RIA. I know. It's insane. Know. Well, it's 1.3 billion to Egypt. I think you said trillion, but. Did I? Yeah, yeah, but it's. Billion. It's, I'm sorry. 1.3 billion. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's just. It's, it's disgusting. So let me tell you the good points in this. I mean, semi good points in this before I get into some bashing points, because there's some stuff tucked in here. And obviously I didn't have time to read all of this. I was keyword searching specific things I wanted to know about. So, um, okay. So 
unemployment insurance, they have 120 billion allocated towards, um, basically they want to do the 300 per week through March 14th on that. Um, it extend, extends special pandemic benefits for gig workers and extends the maximum period for state paid jobless benefits to 50 weeks. They've got, uh, well, they're talking about, so they were talking about the 600 direct payments to individuals making up to 75,000 a year and then couples up to 150,000 with payments phased out for higher incomes and then 600 additional uh, payments per dependent child. So we'll see how they end up switching that. Trump said go up to 2,000 a person. We'll see what happens there. We have the Paycheck Protection Program, which will revive the, the, let's see. So it provides forgivable loans to qualified businesses. They have 284 billion set aside for that. Um, it ensures that PPP subsidies are not taxed. They've set 25 billion aside for rental assistance. And I didn't have a chance to read this. This one, this one I'm cautious about. So it provides money for a first ever federal rental assistance program. Funds to be distributed by state and local governments to help people who have fallen behind on their rent and may be facing eviction. So I suspect that the, those funds would actually potentially, I don't know, because I haven't looked yet, but I would think they would set this so that those funds would go perhaps to the landlords directly as opposed to the person. Otherwise it would go to the person and the landlords would then later have to be reimbursed and it could screw the landlords. So I'm not sure how that would work, but it's alarming to me because this is going to set a precedent, almost like a little pilot program of theirs for how they might later down the road, try to control ownership of, of housing because we know that's one of their agendas, one of their 2030 agendas. So, so then we have the food and farm aid, 26 billion. So they're looking to increase uh, stamps benefits by 15% for six months and provides funding to food banks, uh, Meals on Wheels and other food aid. It's providing an additional 13 billion to farmers and ranchers. Uh, they set aside 10 billion for childcare uh, let's see, that'll help families and childcare costs, help provide providers cover increased operating costs. Then we have 82 billion set aside for schools and universities. Um, 69 billion set aside for vaccines, testing and health providers. Uh, let's see, so Congress includes, now I don't know what these are exactly. Um, I didn't have a chance to get to the whole you know, what might be in there as far as tax credits, but they are saying that they included provisions, making it easier for people to receive earned income and child tax credits while also allowing businesses to write off 100% of business meals instead of the current 50% and axing an excise tax increase on brewers and distilleries. They said in here, I did find... Um, one area where it said none of the funds made available in this title may be sued in whole or in part to advocate to advocate or promote gun control. That was when I was kind of doing a quick glance through their whole, you know, gun section and alcohol and tobacco. The it also includes 1.35 billion for 56 miles of the border wall. 
So now let's get into the nightmare. <laughs> ah, so we've got, you know, one of the things is we've, there's, to my knowledge, there's no mention in here of business liability coverage, which was a big one that Trump's been pushing for. And in my opinion, is critical because by having that, and we've talked about this for months now, by having that, it allows businesses to not have to be so demanding on the masks, for example, right? Right. So, I mean, if they can't be held liable, if someone was to say, get COVID and say, oh, I'm going to sue you because I think I somehow contracted it out of your place of business. Um, so I had, did not see that in there. Um, what I did see that irked me is $6 billion going to HIV AIDS in one particular. So it's a little confusing because they have, you know, there's so many sections in here and I'll give that breakdown in a minute. But do you remember back in April when Trump did a press conference and he was saying, talking about PEPFAR and he was talking about which, you know, is the AIDS and, and the $6 billion a year that was going towards that and how he plans on reallocating that because he thinks those funds can be better spent you know, differently in a different way. So restructuring that. Well, they snuck that in here. They also have in here 1.25 billion. So it's to the um, NIH Office of the Director, 1.25 billion with 1.15 billion going towards research and clinical trials related to a long-term to long-term studies of COVID-19 and no less than a hundred million for rapid acceleration of diagnostics. So we know that's, that's Fauci's area there. Then we have, and I was, I was trying to read up on this to make sure I fully understood this. I would have to review more documents. So I, I extracted this from, I read about three different reports and they all seem to be saying the same thing. Hopefully this is accurate. Um, <clears throat> the illegal streaming for profit, right? This went viral. Everyone was freaking out about this. So <clears throat> I don't know if they're going to, hmm, we really do need to hammer Trump on this because we don't, we do not want this in there. Um, so what it is, is there's like three different things they, they, they put in here. There was like a trademark thing. There's the case act, which has to do with copyright claims. And then there's this illegal streaming for profit, which was um, Senator Tillis and co-led by Senator Patrick Leahy. Uh, Leahy. So he put out a statement because everyone was freaking out saying, well, we're not going to be able to stream anything. They're going to call this like copyright laws and it's illegal and it's going to be a felony and fines up to 30,000 and da, 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 da. So he put out a statement saying, I am proud this common sense legislation that was drafted with the input of creators, user groups and technology companies will become law so we can target criminal organizations and ensure that no individual streamer has to worry about the fear of prosecution. There's some relief that, uh, so, so what he's saying there is not individual streamers, that it has to do with um, streaming for profit, making it sound like they're going to be targeting more criminal organizations and more commercial 
It, it's no. bullshit because independent streamers, especially gamers, gaming streamers, um, have their own businesses and their own brands. So how's that going to hurt them? Because they have right. corporations in themselves. Right, and that's what I was wondering. So I have to go in and actually read all of these, you know, uh, bills that they were trying to put through so that I could to, to break this down better for people. So I'm basically just, I'm pulling from the reports that I found and the statement that he put out on this. But I, it's, it's very, very sketchy. Um, what does this have to do with COVID anyways? Well, because there's, so 1.4 trillion is the omnibus bill, omnibus bill, where they cram all these bills in at the end of the year and they get them through and then it floats them for the next year. And then the other 900 billion is the COVID. So, so this assumably would fall under the omnibus bill where they were sneaking that in. Wow. Yeah. yeah but, but streamers, like, I, I watch a lot of streamers, actually, that are not relative to our um, industry in ourselves. I watch a lot of that stuff. But um, they're all pissed off, man. Because even, even prior to this coming out, you had game companies and some big game directors and stuff that were saying, you know, these streamers should pay us for playing our product. And mm -hmm. this is just another rapid expanse of it. Uh, it if anything you should be paying them also for pushing your product at 10 times more than it would have got anyway <laughs> right because half these streamers like like a lot of the big ones you're talking about two three million followers i mean it's 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 a lot of people that watch those streams and there's some games that they play that wouldn't it ever been picked up normally right and that just expands their brand so it's um yeah, they're not happy, and they, sh yeah, I, I, I feel for them. That they shouldn't be, especially when they're. It's it's like they're bringing it back to corporations, not to independent streamers. Yeah. So we're gonna have to look at that a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it says, it says in here, there's some relief that the bill doesn't include penalties for individuals found to have illegally streamed content, thus potentially criminalizing ordinary Twitch streamers or YouTubers. But there's criticism of the claims tribunal as being potentially unaccountable and fears that fair use provisions will be ignored. Of and course then, it will. It's uh, always abused. Yeah, and then the Case Act, so this creates a new copyright claims board within the U.S. Copyright Office. So it's kind of like a small claims court, and they can adjudicate copyright claims and order fines of up to $30,000. Um, so what they say is they're empowered to adjudicate copyright infringement claims unless the accused received a notice, recognizes what it means, and opts out in a very specific manner within a limited time period. So this is all happening while we've got the National Defense Authorization Act that's, uh, is that potentially being vetoed today, Edge? Yeah, today, Wednesday, we're recording. And today, Wednesday, is the final day for President Trump to veto the National Defense Authorization Act. He's expected to do so. He said he would do so several times because they refused to put a repeal of Section 230 in the NDAA. But also, I want to make a clarification because this went viral too this week. 
about them slipping and the amendment to the Insurrection Act. That did happen, although there was some confusion as to what bill it was slipped into. I think it was earlier reported that it was in the COVID bill. It's not. It's actually in the NDAA. And so that um, we should see. I wish that I had more like an update because you know how this always goes. We record and then news drops. But I, yeah. know. <laughs> I know by the time this publishes, we'll have our answer. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Trump should veto this NDAA uh, right. to Wednesday. But here's the deal is that uh, the House is already planning to override because they had a supermajority on that NDAA. So they're already planning to override that veto. However, there are going to be several procedural hurdles that they're going to have some hoops they're going to have to jump through in a limited amount of time with the holidays on top of that, calling uh, everyone back to D.C., uh, December 28th, so it, it may not, um, they may not be able to override it in time is my point. They, it's the, the, the deadline is January 3rd, so we'll need to keep an eye on it because there are some important things in that NDAA that we do not want um, to, uh, to pass, in particular that amendment to the Insurrection Act that was slipped in there. Right, so. right. So let me just finish this up real quick and then we'll switch over to um, some elections and some of the other interesting things that have dropped this week. So they've also managed to squeak in $35.2 billion for their energy initiatives into this bad boy. Now under Gates, so this is where it gets a little complicated and I didn't have time to read all this, but a lot of people were tweeting out that like $3.2 billion is going to Gates. And in my estimation, it's actually quite a bit more than that. So what they did is on page 1278 of this wonderful 5,600 page doc, they, they do have, they have about 12, close to 3, 3.3 billion set for global health programs. Now of that, a portion, I think everyone just assumed that was all going to Gavi because a lot of it has to do with HIV AIDS you know, maternal health programs and other programs and vaccines and stuff like that. So whereas a hefty chunk will likely go to Gabi, um, there are, you've got Chemonics, you've got uh, John Snow, you've got these other organizations um, that I follow in the USA Data Explorer when you look up the foreign aid and all that good stuff. So a lot of the HIV AIDS stuff, the majority of it all is going to other countries and it's funneling through not just Gavi, but it's funneling through some of those other organizations as well. So I imagine that'll be, that would be kind of divvied up there. Separately, however, they've got 5,930,000,000 set for HIV AIDS where they specify in here 1.56 million will be the second installment to the global fund for its six replenishment. And they also have 17 million set to be made available for administrative expenses to the office of the United States global AIDS coordinator, <clears throat> Deborah Burks. So if she's retiring from, you know, completely, then someone would be likely moving into that position. But so that's for her office. Now, separately on page 1590, you go into other global 
health programs and they are talking specifically about COVID vaccines and they have four billion allocated for that, all of which they are indicating as going to Gavi unless I read that wrong. It looked like it was all going to Gavi. So hell of a lot for anyone who doesn't know, Gavi and the Global Fund are Bill Gates. <clears throat> now they do have, which I was actually surprised to see this, they had a couple of sections in there uh, when they were talking about these funds, uh, especially because a lot of it will go towards, you know, maternal health programs, which I've done reports on the whole abortion agenda and everything and how they've been training people in other countries, primarily Africa. So it does state though, none of the funds made available in this act nor any obligated balances from prior appropriations acts may be made available to any organization or program which as determined by the President of the United States supports or participates in the management of a program coercive of, of coercive abortion or involuntary sterilization. Thought that was interesting that that was in here. Um, there was a few more sentences to do with that too, but it was all, um, you know, that was surprising to me. So now there was just, there were a couple other things and then I'm, and then I can wrap this up because <laughs> I found this kind of interesting too. And then, and I have to go back through and, and see because they actually have this indicated in three separate areas. So I need to see if they're breaking this out as part of a larger sum or if these are all separate amounts. Uh, it's talking about the Vaccine Injury Act and how they're setting aside funds. So they're saying, like, in addition for expenses of the Department of Justice associated with processing cases under the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, not to exceed $17 million to be appropriated from the Vaccine Injury Compensation Trust Fund and to remain available until expended. But then in another area, they have another 9.9 .9 million. And then in a third area, they have um, another 11.2 million. So, and these are in completely different sections. So I'll have to go back and look through that. Um, one of the things, <laughs> that shocked me about this, well, it doesn't shock me, is how low that number is, you know? Right. I mean, going back, when I was doing my report a year ago on the whole vaccine industry, going back to 1986, um, when this, this injury, you know, compensation program began, they were already up to 4.1 billion in injury and death claims, which of course happens behind closed doors because we know no pharma companies are held liable. So our taxpayer dollars pay for any of those injury and death claims. And it cannot be done in a court of law because they don't want that information out there. All we know is the total amount that's gone out. So to say that this small amounts being set aside for that when we're dealing with a vaccine right now that has sped through at rocket pace um, and is already showing some side effects, serious side effects. In fact, the CDC uh, is looking into 3,150 cases of adverse events 
Um, and there's been uh, anaphylactic shock and, um, I've been getting some, some reports from some medical staff saying that, you know, they've had really bad reactions to it. Um, I do have a friend who's a nurse who got one, uh, who did not have any reactions to it. So, so we'll see moving forward how, how that all rolls out. But, um, then they have for CDC wide activities and program support to prevent, prepare, and respond to coronavirus domestically and international, 8.7 billion. Bada boom. They even set aside 287 million to prepare and respond to an influenza pandemic, just in case. Isn't that what we're already dealing with, basically? <laughs> oh, but I just have to, I, you have to love how they threw in there, oh, just just a, a little more than a billion for all of these um, art centers, you know, the Kennedy Center, the Smithsonian, the National Art Ga Gallery, National Art and Humanities, Wilson Center, because none of this, absolutely none of it has to do with COVID. And Trump pointed that out in his statement to the public this week. They had one billion just to Smithsonian alone. Yeah. Insane. 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 And oh, and then so like Kennedy Center's 26.4 million. So then did you see uh, on the same day, um, Trump put out the nominees for to like board of directors for all these different arts yep. places and everything. And it included some people for the Kennedy Center and Smithsonian. So that I was saw that. Yeah. Like I saw some really key names that he appointed yeah. to key positions at some of these art centers, like Pam Bondi in particular uh, comes to mind. And I can't remember if it was for the Kennedy Center. I'll have to look that up real quick. But um, yeah, I when I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, ooh, he, he knows that they use these places for money laundering, and he's pointing people to key positions so they can watch the flow, the cash flow. He did that on the last one. Do you remember? Back when yeah. they passed the other COVID relief bill, they also had some stuff worked in there on the Kennedy Center and some other places, and he did the same thing. He, he like, within a very short time of that coming out, he nominated those people to be on the board so very very <laughs> kind of funny oh goodness so so that's pretty much that we'll hold off on my my part four report let's let's like switch over and get into some of the stuff you're going to cover okay um a couple of states i really want to focus on uh, with regards to the election, the electors, the voter fraud, the election fraud, all that, um, are Georgia and Arizona. So this week, a report by the Georgia Senate Judiciary Committee came out and it was outlining election fraud. And in this report, it stated that the results of the election cannot be trusted this is a Senate Judiciary Committee report. It said that the results cannot be trusted, the certification should be rescinded, and the General Assembly should determine the electors. So that caused a lot of heat to come down on the Governor, uh, Governor Kemp and others uh, to call a special session. 
I think people were blowing up the phones this week uh, for <laughs> Governor Kemp, um, but they were put up under enough pressure that the Georgia House actually called a hearing, just like real impromptu Tuesday night, rushed through this this uh, you know meeting to to have on Wednesday morning, um, calling Raffensperger. Gabriel Sterling and, of course, Raffensperger's uh, lawyer to testify to these allegations and claims made in the Senate Judiciary Committee report. And uh, this hearing, like I said, was thrown together the day before. Many of the state reps weren't invited, weren't even notified. None of the witnesses to the voter fraud made in that report uh, were called to testify. Uh, by the, you know, so hmm. it, it was, uh, and I watched the first couple of hours of it, um, practically fell asleep during it. <laughs> um, basically, it was nothing more than an attempt to give Raffensperger and his crew a chance to, you know, make excuses, to pass the buck. Um, no hard questions were asked, really, no pushback, no real resolve by these House members to get to the bottom of it. Uh, Raffensperger hardly even spoke. Um, his lawyer did practically all the talking, and the claims that the lawyer made um, were that Trump's, the Trump campaign's allegations of voter fraud were just completely false. Uh, he spouted off some numbers, very, very small numbers of things that they were investigating, but nowhere near what the Trump campaign's allegations of voter fraud were in that hearing. But he didn't provide any proof during that hearing. Um, it was always like, uh, can you give us some documentation on this? Yeah, I'll follow up with you. You know, that sort of a thing. Um, so nothing really came of this hearing other than it was just a show. It was for show because they were put under pressure by the citizens, um, not just in Georgia, but around the country, um, putting pressure on them after this report came out. So, but it's also important to note that none of these people, Raffensperger, Sterling, or Raffensperger's lawyer, were even put under oath uh, during this hearing. So it was wow. just a show. Yeah, it was yeah. just a show. Um, many shows. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, Arizona um, is interesting. So Last week, the Arizona Board of Supervisors defied the subpoenas um, to turn over the machines for forensic audit. Instead, they filed a complaint in the Superior Court. And their was, excuse was that there wasn't enough time to comply, that the, the subpoena was, you know, um, that it was, it was unconstitutional because of voter information, yada, yada, yada. Um, they were coming up with a lot of excuses as to why they were not going to supply, to comply with the subpoena. But uh, one of the, and one of the board members, he was actually like irate during the meeting talking about how he's not interested in satisfying only a small group of loud participants and that the subpoena, they, they went too far with the subpoena. It was way too far out of bounds. And he was disappointed in the Arizona legislatures. It was ridiculous, his response to this. It was ab absolutely a despicable sight to see. And um, they they just looked incredibly guilty with this response. But then on Tuesday, so that was like last last week. Then this week on Tuesday, we got news that the Arizona GOP electors have filed a motion to intervene in this case. And 
what's happened is so also on Tuesday the the subpoena went to the court it appears that the the Board of Supervisors just wants to delay as much as possible they're trying to run the clock basically run out the clock um, the court uh, the judge, his name is Judge Warner, he stated uh, that basically he doesn't know what more he, he meaning the court, can do. In essence, a, a subpoena by the legislature has the same power as a subpoena by the court. So basically he's just t throwing it back on the legislator and saying, look, you have the subpoena power. Um, you have the same power as the court. You just need to enforce it. Right. at this point so uh, meaning they have the power to arrest people like board of board of supervisors members and throw them in jail for not complying and it really just falls on them to, are they going to have enough guts to do it um so they, they really need to enforce this this subpoena um because yeah. uh they're slow walking. The Board of Supervisors is basically just slow walking, uh, get handing over these, these machines. And so um, the Arizona State Legislature needs to grow a pair and enforce the subpoena. I'm sorry. It's down to that right now. We've got to start arresting people, in my opinion. That's right. what I think. Um, right. So um, also out of Arizona, Rudy Giuliani dropped a bomb this week on War Room Pandemic. Um, he was stating that on Tuesday, uh, he said that the Arizona lawmakers were attempting to pass a resolution to certify Trump as the winner in that state. And that hmm. earlier this week, they didn't have enough votes to do it, but they were planning on meeting again Wednesday, the day we're recording. So again, yeah. here we are. <laughs> we'll probably on Christmas Eve. Yeah, news always drops after we record. But yep. we'll see if Arizona uh, state legislatures get enough votes um, Wednesday um, to pass it. Giuliani said he was hopeful Arizona lawmakers will be able to close the deal before Christmas. So uh, just need to keep an eye on Arizona. And uh, yeah. those, those are the two key states that I really was following this week with some, some good developments or interesting developments. So much to follow it's like I'll hit I'll hit the COVID stuff. You hit the election stuff. It's hard to keep up with it all. It is, it <laughs> especially is. when there's when there's like hearings, you know, several hours to listen to or a lot really long documents to review. And yeah, I pretty much decided this week, following all of this stuff, and then you know, taking a couple of days off for the holiday to spend with family is pretty much going to be my week. And then I'll get back to working on part five of my report next week because it's just. There's so much going on. And 15 pardons. Did you see? He pardoned George Papadopoulos. I saw that. That yeah. That's great. And and I don't know a lot of these people who have been pardoned, honestly. Um, there were uh, like three former GOP members of Congress. There were four uh, governor contractors. Uh, <clears throat> there's one I was just looking at. And, I, and I'll put this link below the video, but on the White House website, it lists them all. And I was just looking at this one. <laughs> and so it's Alfred Lee Crum. Uh, and he's now 89 years old. And he pled guilty in 1952 when he was 19 years old to helping his wife's 
uncle illegally distill moonshine in Oklahoma. He served three years of probation and paid a $250 fine, which I imagine was quite a bit back then, and has maintained a clean record and a strong marriage for nearly 70 years, attended the same church for 60 years, raised four children, and and so I was wow. like, oh, wow, for like moonshine back in 1952. So that yeah. was one of them. That was kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of, <clears throat> I don't know if there were any that like really stood out to you, but. Well, yeah, there were the two um, that were related to Russiagate, two defendants yeah. of Russiagate. Uh, one, I wasn't really familiar with him. He was a Ukraine lobbyist, um, the other one being Papadopoulos. And the rest of them I really was not familiar with, um, but all seemed to be kind of like minor drug offenses and that sort of a thing. So, um, yeah, let me see. I'm just reading here. Okay, so the Ukraine lobbyist that was uh, pardoned that had to do with Russiagate was Alex van der Zwan. So Alex van der Zwan mm -hmm. and George Papadopoulos were uh, were pardoned. Um, but yeah, so, uh, oh, also Blackwater Security Consulting, some people uh, were pardoned for employees of Blackwater Security Consulting who were convicted on charges related to civilian casualties in Iraq in 2007. Okay. Um, so, contractors then, yeah. Yeah, but then, you know, some small drug and nonviolent offenses as well. So, I just thought the moonshine one was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just imagine being like 89 years old and, and having the need to be pardoned from something like that from all the way back in 1952 or having, having that desire, you know, it's just, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I think that uh, Trump really does. He's a man of the people. He understands that there is two sets of rules, one for the people oh, and yeah. one for the, uh, the politicians and the um people in power. Um, so it, it's nice to see that, you know, he really gives a break to, you know, people uh, like that who obviously have had, uh, you know, have learned from mistakes and, and changed and uh, become better people because of it. Um, you know, we, we don't ever get to see any kind of justice for these uh, people in power who have been committing crimes for decades. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's nice to see that, that Trump actually is trying to, you know, set some things right. Right. Before, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So what about these two big white house meetings we've had? There's been a lot going on with that, with Patrick Byrne and Sidney Powell and general Flynn and lots of, lots of info dropping this week and trying to dissect and discern through that. It's a lot. It's a lot to to try to discern. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there were two two big White House meetings uh, this week that I want to cover. Um, the first one is a group of lawmakers, including Louis Gomer, uh, Matt Ga Gates, Andy Biggs, and several others, uh, met with the president to go over a plan to challenge the election on January sixth. Uh, since then, several others have come out in support of this, and there's a growing coalition now of lawmakers who are saying that they plan to contest the election on January 6th. And yeah. so this should get very interesting to see how things play out and also watching Pence closely over the next uh, few days as well um, and the signaling that he is making um, in support of this um, contested 
um, election on January 6th. So, well, and the fact that Trump called, you know, so I hear there's going to be a protest in D.C. on January 6th. It's going to be wild. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I was going to mention that. In other words, well- he would like 3 million people to show up in D.C. on January 6th. So be there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we got 3 million. Honestly, um, Code Monkey and many other people have been doing a lot to help organize the Stop the Steal protest in Washington, D.C., scheduled for January 6th. And, um, yeah, President Trump did actually promote that, saying, you know, come on out. It's going to be wild. (laughs) (laughs) So I bet it will. I have no doubts. Um, This other big meeting that happened this week in the White House was this meeting with Sidney Powell, General Flynn, Patrick Byrne, along with the president's advisors. And what's interesting about this meeting is what we're hearing from Patrick Byrne is that it got really heated in this meeting and um, almost to the point of physical altercation, but not quite. Um, apparently the president's advisors were saying no to every option that was being uh, presented as a path forward. Um, Patrick Byrne also stated that there are people in Trump's circle who have been trying to get him to concede. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to explain in an interview actually with Andrew Van Steele. He's, uh, Patrick Byrne's been doing several interviews this week on alt media. Uh, he was on An- Vandersteel's uh, show and said that Trump had announced in that meeting that he was appointing Sidney Powell a special counsel. But the strange thing about it is that the next day, Sidney was denied an office and denied a White House pass by Mark Meadows and other mm-hmm. White House uh, advisors. So, Well, and then Giuliani came out. And said that she's not on a special counsel and she's not part of the Trump legal team. You know, that she's a great woman, she's a great attorney, and, you know, she's fighting for the people. But that was all kind of weird, too. Yeah, it was very awkward. That that separation that Rudy uh, reiterated this week, I think it was on Newsmax. Mm -hmm. And the tone of it was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So it's... It's interesting to watch this unfold between different kind of factions going on here and everybody's struggling to have the the president's ear and everybody get, putting their two cents in on the best way forward but from what well, Patrick- then he also said didn't didn't burn say that he uh they had all put together this like huge packet of documents yes. and then they get there and they find out that the the his advisors weren't even showing him these documents and yes. so he's planning on making these all public i don't know that he's yep. done that yet or not but yeah yeah he did say that he said that they were withholding his advisors were withholding information from him and misleading uh him and um yeah that's that's concerning it's very concerning and 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 then to back this up in an interview this week on Shine Hannity's radio show, uh, Sidney Powell said something to the same effect um, that she did not feel that Trump's advisors were serving him well and that they were misleading him. So um, well, even Flynn and, and I can't, don't quote me on exactly what he said because I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but he had tweeted out and said something to the effect of how he could verify or validate what Patrick said as far as, the advisors go because at some point during that meeting he himself stood up 
and ask them if they feel he should keep fighting or something to that degree. And then there was like this silence or something. I, I, I'm going to have to find that tweet. But so, so they definitely all seem to be on the same page with that meeting, you know? Yes. Yeah. It does seem that way. And uh, so I think that that's, that's disturbing to know, but um, Trump knows what he's doing. Trump has never, he's always uh, been a leader, meaning he, he doesn't, I, I know that he listens to people and he listens to advisors, but ultimately he makes the call. Yeah, he follows his instincts. He does. In fact, the video that he did when he came out about regarding the whole COVID relief package and he came out and said, you know, I mean, that, that was a, if you look at the comments under that, that video, there's actually people on the left chiming in saying they agree with him on that because they were, everyone's pissed off. We don't want, we, we can't afford billions of our, we're so far in debt. You want to take billions of our taxpayer dollars and, and our print money and send it off to other countries when you have major issues going on here. So, so he, uh, there was word coming out that, that his advisors were uh, basically telling him not to do that video and he did it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems to me like he's starting to kind of see, and this is how, this is, this is how compromised so many levels are, you know, we're, we're yeah. still finding out and weeding out who we can yeah. trust and who we can't. And there may be some people even within the white house, even surrounding Trump that are not serving his best interest. And right. um, as Patrick Byrne had explained, you know, they're just, they're in it for their own personal gain. They've got side deals. They are, they're already looking to uh, what they're going to be doing after this. And they've already made deals and, you know, they're, uh, it's to their benefit that, right. that Trump just moves on. Right. right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, everybody's in it for their own personal gain. And we don't have a lot of patriots that are really willing to stick up and stand up and fight. Um, right. But I, I, I know that Trump is. I know that Trump is going to fight. And I know that he's starting to determine um, who he can trust and who he can. It seems as though you really did pay attention to what Sidney Powell, uh, Flynn, and Patrick Byrne had presented to him. And, right. you know, if, if this information about him actually pointing Sidney Powell as a special counsel is true. So, and it seems right. that it is. Um, I think we just need to, to, to see, to wait and see. But, you know, Patrick Burns has been dropping some bombs lately. Like I said, he's, he's been doing like this whole round of interviews. Uh, right. He was on <laughs> Dark and Light. On, with The recent one on Epstein. Yeah, yeah. So he was oh. on with Tracy Beans and, and Frank. Uh, he was on in the Matrix, and he was on uh, Doctor Janda and and Vandersteel. So he's kind of made made the rounds and been dropping bombs in each of these interviews this week. Right. But uh, you know, one of them is that you know he told the F he he said that he was told by the FBI to pay an eighteen million dollar bribe to Hillary Clinton. That was mm -hmm. one of the bombs. Uh, another one was about Epstein and his murder and that it was done by the deep state um that the guards were put to sleep with laughing gas snaked in through the ventilators 
um, he did talk a lot about um, or somewhat about um, Chinese interference in the election um, and printing fraudulent ballots that they have proof or evidence that mm -hmm. they're, uh, this might be actually part of what he's talking about dropping uh, soon. And then he did talk about some information on Fast and Furious. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting week. Yeah. It has. Well, and then there was the White House memo on uh, the Attorney General's authority to use classified information in connection with the review of intelligence activities. And that, that goes back to the investigation into the 2016 election and Russian hoax and all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, so this week um, we have Barr stepping down Wednesday yep. and the acting attorney general. Yeah, today's his last his day. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and it would be really great to see an investigation immediately launched by the DOJ <laughs> into election <laughs> interference and, and election fraud. Um, yeah, I know there's some skepticism by people on the new AGN, and I honestly cannot speak intelligently to that because I have not dug into him. So I can't, I mean, I dug a little bit into the deputy AG, but not into the AG himself and uh, Rosen. And I just, I just don't know enough about him. So it's going to have to wait and see, uh, you yeah. know, how, how it goes, but uh, a clue as to how it may go um, as this memo, that memo you just referred to where uh, Trump just this week authorized the new AG to use classified information and connect in connection with the review of intelligence activities relating to the 2016 cam uh, presidential campaign. So mm -hmm. basically authorizing him access to classified information that is going to show how the intelligence community uh, basically uh, interfered in the 2016 election and, um, right. you know, the whole Russiagate thing. So, um, yeah. I don't know, a lot of moving parts this week. Uh, it seems like, and we've said this um, in, in weeks prior, it's just like moves and counter moves. You can see um, a lot of good things being put into place and you're like, okay, okay, uh, this is, this is good. This is good. But then you see right. the counter moves, <laughs> right? The counter moves. Uh, you by know, the it's an bank. emotional roller coaster. You're almost better off to just take a few days off and then come back and see where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Um, and everyone's saying it's the Pence card. That's the path is the Pence card on January 6th. So, so we'll see, we'll keep our eyes on it. Uh, I just want to go through a handful of bullet points real quick. I won't go in depth into it. I encourage everyone to come in and read part four of my reports. Uh, it's COVID-19 part four, the test that changed the world is deeply flawed. And I have a compilation of information in here, some really critical information and data and lawsuits and what's going on with this, um, some recent studies that have come out. So there's a lot of evidence in here. Um, I talk about, uh, uh, I'm just going to be the bullet points on what I cover is the, uh, there, there was, I did find there was a task force created for emergency diagnostic tests and EUAs was formed 10 months prior to COVID even hitting the States. So that was interesting. Um, there has never been a sample specimen of the alleged virus purified and isolated. The inventor of PCR, Kerry Mullis, along with numerous other scientists, have always said that PCR should not be used for, for medical diagnostics. There's uh, 
90% of COVID positive people are asymptomatic, which indicates, you know, a very high level of false positives. And that all ties back to the, these other scientists and Carrie Mullis, you know, stating that that's, that's what would happen. So we've got 54 studies that have come out recently on 77,758 participants that find household secondary attack rate, that the chance of uh, the infected person infecting another person in the home is um, 18% if the index case is symptomatic. Now, if they're asymptomatic, which they have been gaslighting, the media has been gaslighting on this, including Fauci, saying that asymptomatic people are super spreaders. No, it is literally 0.007%. It is less than 1% possibility. And in, and in some studies, they'll tell you it's like zero possibility. Even the WHO has, has said as much. So, and that's from, that's out of almost 78,000 participants in 54 studies. So we've got scientists that found 10 major scientific flaws at the molecular and methodical, methodological level with consequences for false positive results. And they are calling on retraction of the original protocol for the RT-PCR tests. Uh, doctors worldwide. I've got, I've got several videos in here. Um, some of them are just like little two minuteers, and then there's, you know, there's a longer one in here that I encourage everyone watch because it's worldwide doctors speaking out about the pandemic, the tests, and warning of the dangers of these vaccines because they have not met safety standards. We've got surveys in here on 36 to 40 percent of medical staff saying that they're not going to get the vaccines. And then, of course, I cover the uh, adverse because just as I was wrapping this up is when it hit that the CDC has already documented, documented 3,150 adverse events. The FDA is also investigating that anaphylaxis shock and allergic reactions from the Pfizer vaccine. So there's so much evidence packed into this one. And next week, I'll be working on part five, which is the final wrap-up of this five-part series. Excellent. And then I think I'm, gonna, I think I'm just going to stop talking about COVID after that, because I'll have like pretty much all the core evidence to show data manipulation. And like I've always said, there is a virus. There are people that are getting sick. But if you take the total overall, it is 99.98% survival rate. There's the breakdown by age, but... You know, so it goes up or down depending on age, but it overall is 99.98% survival rate. And that's on U.S. numbers. Well, I'll take my chances on the survival rate versus taking right. the vaccine they've got. I think that's how most of us feel, you know, and then there's some people that are okay, you know, that are that are more okay with vaccines, but even they want to wait a couple years to see how this shakes out and what kind of side effects we're talking about in um, MNRA here that, Ugh. you know, it's just, that's just a whole ball of wax for another podcast there. I but, know, right? Oh but my I have, gosh. but if you, if you go in and you watch some of the videos I have on this report, you'll learn more about that too. So. Okay, good. Everybody check out Corey's report. Her stuff is always incredibly in depth. <laughs> no. so, so what are you guys doing for Christmas? Mm, you know, the usual cooking, eating, <laughs> opening presents. <laughs> How about you? Are you still awake with us? Did you fall asleep, bud? 
Oh, I think I think, I think speaker fell asleep. <laughs> uh, I write on the chat on the side of the window so you guys can read it, but you guys are not reading it. So uh, I'm I'm back now. There, hey, hey. I'm yeah. I'm going to be in bed for Christmas. Oh, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's sad. Oh boy. Well, I am going to be over at my folks' house. I'm very excited. I'm going to go camp out over there for two days and not work. Not that you won't see me on Twitter here and there, but, you know, for me, not working is not doing deep research and not writing. Yeah, I'm excited for a couple of days off myself. Oh, me too. I can't I wait. Well, I hope everyone out there takes some time with your family and friends. Have a very Merry Christmas. We love you all. Stay strong. Keep fighting. If you can make it out to DC on the 6th, definitely, definitely be there. And, um, and we will be back next week. Whew, there'll probably be lots of big updates by then. Oh, yeah. It's happening fast. So Merry Christmas all to you all. We love you all. And we will see you back next time right here on Dig It. Please be sure to share this podcast. We're on Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and YouTube. We'll see you back next time right here on Dig It. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I was like...